And this session we're going to be looking at gaining victory over life-dominating sin. And we just heard a good um, general session on progressive sanctification, basically. And and that is, um, for all intents and purposes, what we're talking about in uh, this session as well. I make no promises as to being able to finish all of the session, but we will see as we uh, progress. You have in your notebook the notes for this. So, um, And we're going to be addressing this from helping counselees think biblically about their remaining sin. And that Romans 6 passage is such a good and a helpful passage for us. One of the things you'll realize is that you have to help counselees think biblically about their sin. Um, that is a huge issue. At the start of your counseling sessions, be sure to encourage your counselees with the true promises of the Word of God regarding remaining sin and its practice. There's more to this particular dynamic than we have time to address in this session. However, teaching them to learn to think biblically about this is a must in order for them to be able to gain victory. So, as many times when you will be dealing with somebody in the counseling setting, they might not be quite convinced that their sin is a sin, or if they're, if they're pretty convinced that it's a sin, they might not be convinced as to why they are sinning. So you're, you're there to help them to think biblically. It's significant because our current evangelical culture is too prone to want to manipulate the scriptures to do what? To say what it wants it what they want it to say. That's exactly what Paul warns us about. In the last days, something's going to happen, and what's going to happen is the kind of teaching that we're doing, the kind of emphasis that we have upon the sufficiency of the Word of God is not going to be well-received. It's not nice. Listen, there's a reason why there's a church in Texas that has 30,000 people in it every Sunday. And there's a reason why uh, generally... Churches that are doing their best to adhere to the gospel, to adhere to the, to the preaching of the word of God, is a bit, I think we can apply the parallel that Jesus gives as a bit of a narrow path and the broad path. It's not always easy to hear about our sin. It's not always easy to hear that we're sinners. It's not always easy to hear that we sin because we're sinners. That is, that is a message that's not always easy to hear. Thank you. But if that's the only message we're giving, we're not giving the whole message either, right? So we're giving not only the bad news, but we're giving also the hope and the promise of the good news. So we can't manipulate the scriptures to say what we want the Bible to say regarding the practices of sin in the life of the professed believer. You're going to have to be confident about this. Uh, So we hear so much today from those around us, both in the world, and here's the sad thing, even in the church, that would tell us that we can't have victory over life-dominating sin, or that it's not even important for us to try, or that's just the way I am. This is just the way I am. That's the big argument today, isn't it? Or if you're not sure what you are, that's the big argument today. Listen, I'll give you a little clue. We say this in in our church pretty frequently. And I'm thankful for this little truth. The simplicity of my Bible helps me with the complexities of life. Isn't it true? The simplicity of my Bible, man and woman, 
simplicity of my Bible helps me with the complexities of life. So we have to be very careful about this. Let's give a definition of life-dominating sin. It's a problem, substance, or attitude that controls or dominates the personality and the character of a person so much so that he can actually be labeled by the problem. He's an angry man. He's a homosexual, a liar, an adulterer, or a fearful man. Or he's a drug addict, an alcoholic, etc. So we're talking about a life-dominating sin either in substance or we're talking about in attitude. And, and it can be called a life-dominating sin if you can be defined by it. If you could be defined by any of those things, if it defines your character, then it's a life-dominating sin. Galatians chapter 5, 19 through 21, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. Now listen, Paul says something here that's significant. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this, it is the practice of their lives, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now I didn't say it. Paul is saying it. Paul is saying, if this is the practice of your life, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, Here's why we have to think biblically about life-dominating sin, because the Bible tells us that people who are labeled with these kinds of problems, due to the fact that it is the practice of their lives, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know how you take that, but I think those are pretty sobering words, especially in the culture in which we're living today. It means that there's no place in the true church for hypocritical Christians. That is, those who speak one way and live another way. And perhaps you've been blessed like me to grow up in the context of the church. I, I've been blessed in that. But I've also seen in growing up in the context of the church that people can play church pretty well. You know, we, we can play church. And we can, we can do that for three or four hours, whatever it is, on the Lord's Day. Whatever your worship comprises, we, we can get that done. But Monday through Saturday is the real issue, isn't it? I was thinking about this when and Phil was um, doing his previous workshop in Proverbs chapter 4. And he was talking about personal piety. We used to, Puritans used to use that term, personal piety. And um, I keep hanging in my office a little a statement which says, what you are when you're alone, that alone you are. This is no truer than that. What you are when you're alone, that alone you are. We're not interested in how you can play church. We're not interested in how big your Bible is. You, you have to bring your Bible in a wagon to church because it's so big. You know, I used to tease and say, and I have a big Bible at home, and um, I usually preach from this. And we had a Heath Lambert with us a while back, and he said, in the front of the room, he said, boy, that's a big Bible. I said, well, we operate on this principle. The bigger the Bible, the better the Christian. <laughs> And I said, well, you see one of the other guys coming up. He has to carry his Bible in a wagon. That's, that's, now that's a Christian. We're not interested in how big your Bible is. What we're interested in and what we're going to give an account for is your own personal piety when nobody else is looking. Nobody else is around. 
And I appreciated what he said in that session because it, it just dovetails to what we're talking about right here. So those who continue to practice their sin with little effort to change while yet professing Christ can be rightly called hypocrites. Hypocritical. Spurgeon states, one thing which has hamstrung the church and cut her very sinews in twain has been this most damnable hypocrisy. Oh, and how many places have we men whom you might praise to the very skies if you could believe their words, but whom you might cast into the nethermost pit if you could see their secret actions. God forgive any of you who are so acting. He goes on to say, I can forgive the man who, with, who, who riots openly and makes no profession of being godly, but the man who fawns and cants and pretends and prays, then lives in sin, that man I cannot bear. If he will turn from his ways, I will love him. But in his hypocrisy, he is to me the most loathsome of creatures. And here's this great warning. Take heed of a life that needs to have two faces to carry it out. You know, um, if you grew up in Cleveland, and I've used this at our church, but if you've grown up in Cleveland, you, you perhaps remember Captain Penny. Any takers? Anybody remember Captain Penny? Okay. So when Captain Penny always used to end his program by saying, remember, boys and girls, you can fool some of the people all of the time, and all of the people some of the time, but you can't fool... Oh, Captain Penny people. <laughs> and my mother uh, generally was in the kitchen, cook, making dinner, getting dinner ready, and she would say to my brother and I, do you boys hear that? And we would say, yes, we hear that. But we knew that there, was time, there were those times we could fool mom. Mind you, we generally got caught later, but we knew that at least for a moment. But I've kind of switched that around. You can fool some of the people all of the time, and all of the people some of the time, but you can't fool God. There's no fooling him. And so you, you and this is what I tell people in the, even in the counseling setting, you can fool me, so what? I'm an idiot. Fool me, because it's, it's not going to get you anywhere, because I'm going to stand in front of the same God that you're going to stand in front of and give an account. So if you fooled me, you haven't gotten anywhere. So we need this warning. And we have to counsel in against the current stream of what is called easy believism. Um, I can accept Jesus as my Savior as the thought of easy believism, but not as my Lord. And still expect to enter heaven. This is the rampant and false teaching which sadly exists at the, in the church at large today. I, Jesus can be my savior, but he doesn't have to be my Lord. And um, I want to encourage you. You might have to think this through yourself theologically. You, you, you might have to think through this doctrinally for yourself. But Acts chapter 2 and verse 36 doesn't leave us this, uh, any wiggle room in this because when Peter is preaching there in Acts chapter 2, he says, this Jesus whom you crucified is both savior and Lord. You cannot separate the offices of Jesus. You, can't, you cannot say that Jesus is my Savior, but he's not my Lord. The, the Bible won't allow us to do that. And yet that's what we've done. And so you can hear songs like, you know, the old, a quartet song which says, I've got my ticket to ride. I've got my ticket to paradise, so won't it be nice? I've got my ticket. I don't have to change. I don't have to be like Christ. I don't have to grow. I don't have to be further sanctified. I got a ticket, baby. And that ticket's going to take me to paradise. That is not at all what our Bible teaches us about Christianity. Isn't that what we just heard right here? 
about the matter of sanctification. So, unfortunately, excuse me, unfortunately, this is the predominant kind of perspective in the church today, that you can take Jesus as your Savior and make him Lord later. Listen, aren't you thankful for this? Jesus isn't waiting for you to make him Lord. He's not waiting for that. If Jesus is waiting for you to make him Lord, then guess what you are? You're the Lord. And it just doesn't work that way. So we have to fight against this. And you're going to fight against this in the counseling um, office. You're going to come against this. Professed Christians are quickly losing the biblical understanding of what true, uh, what a true biblical Christian is. And also, therefore, what he is to look like. Thus, we accept anyone's, quote, testimony of being a Christian no matter what the conduct of their life looks like. And this is fair neither to the one living in such a way or to the church itself. One of the things that I love about biblical counseling, and I try to urge pastors with this simple truth, is this. It is one of the most effective means of evangelizing that a church can be engaged in. And you might be surprised at that. You might say, I'm, not, I, I, I'm here for biblical counseling. You can't know how many people come in and they profess to be a Christian, but when you show them what the Bible actually says about what a Christian really is, they're shocked. Now, this says less about my preaching than I would like it to say. But I'm telling you the truth. I've seen more people come to Christ as a result of the counseling office than I have through the preaching ministry. Now, probably, but that's probably not a fair dichotomy because they're probably both worked together. But I've seen people who, confident in their Christianity, one of the homework assignments I, I love to give at the beginning is Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower and the seed. And I just say to the I don't tell them. I want them to engage with the word of God. And you come back and tell me, based upon Matthew chapter 13, what soil are you? What soil are you? There's only one right soil. In fact, I had one counselee come back and said, I'm all of them. You can't be all of them. Well, I am all of them. I said, no, 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 you're not allowed to be all of them. No, well, I am all of them. No, let's start again. Jesus says you could only be one of these soils. Now, which soil are you? Well, on some days I'm this soil, and on some days I'm <laughs> on this soil, and some days I said, I think we're finding out which soil you're not. How about that? Right? Because there's only one good soil. So you're going to be surprised, perhaps, and pleasantly so, that you get to do a lot of pre-evangelism. I was getting to be a little concerned in our church because people would start to hear, well, I went to see Pastor Dunn. I thought I was a Christian. And then I came out and I found out I wasn't a Christian, but now I've become a Christian. And I thought to my, I think to myself, maybe people aren't going to want to come if they think I'm always going to be questioning their, their faith or their Christianity. But then I was very heartened to hear that John MacArthur said about five or six years ago, he was called to evangelize the church. See? And, and we're called to evangelize the church because we have such um, a, an errant doctrine today in this idea of easy believism. Yes? Can you change soils? Well, if we didn't believe that a soil change could happen, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing. Yes, of course. And, and, but it's Christ that, uh, by his spirit, that changes us to recognize that we need to 
we need to become the soil that the seed of the gospel can grow in. And it's only, only by the work of Christ that that happens. But yes, thankfully for that. So it's Jesus himself who tells us that by our fruits we will be known. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 16. And we live in a day where people will say, well, who am I to judge? Who am I to judge? I shouldn't judge. I judge. Well, you have, a, you have a, you know, we judge all the time. We do, there's a difference between judging and discerning. But, but we discern all the time, don't we? We judge all the time. I mean, if I, if I put a chocolate cake in front of you and I said, what is this? You would probably be able to tell me. You wouldn't stand back and say, oh, it's not my business. I can't, I can't really say what that is. That would be rude. What's rude? It's a chocolate cake. You see, your life by its fruits gives indication of where you are spiritually. This is, this is the truth of the matter. And Jesus says you're going to be known by your fruit. So the Bible teaches clearly that the evidences of God's work in a life is the inevitable fruit of a transformed behavior, 1 John 3.10. Faith that does not result in righteous living is dead and cannot save. Professing Christians utterly lacking the fruit of true righteousness will find no biblical basis for assurance that they are saved. This is significant because real salvation, I hope I don't have to do that every time. Real salvation is not only justification, it cannot be isolated from regeneration, sanctification, and ultimately glorification. Isn't that what we just heard? See, there's one wonderful thing about the truth. The truth will always dovetail with other portions of it. That's what every workshop is doing here today. That's what all the plenaries are doing here today. So salvation is an ongoing process as much as it's a past event. It is the work of God through which we are conformed to the image of his Son. Genuine assurance comes from seeing that the Holy Spirit's transforming work in in one's life, not from clinging to the memory of some experience, says MacArthur. I loved it when Wayne Wack was in our church a while ago, and he made a statement that in another church life, for me, probably would have gotten me kicked out into the parking lot. But he stood and said, I am as dependent upon the grace of God today to save me as I was the very first day when I came to Christ. If you don't have that understanding, if you don't have that concept, then you probably don't have a good concept of grace. You probably don't have a good concept of your need of grace. Puritan preacher John Angel James states, And true saving faith is not merely an occasional act, but a permanent habit, resulting from an internal change by Christ. A real Christian is a Christian always, everywhere, and in all companies. He carries his piety with him wherever he goes as an integral part of himself. It's not like his clothes, which may be continually altered or varied to suit his situation, occupation, and company. He needs his piety everywhere and is commanded to let it be seen everywhere. So unfortunately, the statements of these past and present theologians are becoming more and more rare today in many supposed evangelical churches. We're not hearing this, that you have to have Jesus both as Savior and Lord. So the reason I'm going into this and gaining victory over life-dominating sin is because you're going to have to probably be familiar with it yourself, and you're probably going to have to be able to teach your counselees that if you claim Christ as your Savior, then Christ is your Lord. This has been the orthodox position. But unfortunately, one prominent preacher has even been quoted as saying this, salvation may or may not alter a person's behavior. Transform conduct is desirable, but even, even if no change in lifestyle occurs, the one who has believed the facts of the gospel can rest in the certainty of heaven. By whose Bible? By whose Bible? 
Therefore, you have to be prepared to deal with poor theological thinking on the part of your counselees when they first begin. We do not teach a sinless perfectionism, however. Knowing that as Christians, we will struggle with sin. However, we do hold out that the, the biblical hope for victory, believing that true Christians can have real victory over life-dominating sins. The Bible tells us that sin will not be the practice of our lives. And look at It's Romans 6.14. And where were we? Romans 6.14. And if you look at Romans chapter 6, and verse 15, Paul says even more emphatically there, that by no means should you allow grace to be the license for you to sin. By no means. In other words, you can't even say, well, I'm under grace, and so it doesn't really matter. Paul says that's not, that's not true grace. So we do well in this instance then to remember Martin Luther's uh, statement that the same time we are justified, we are also sinners. Until we're glorified, we will struggle with sin. However, we must not let this knowledge make us think that we can have no real victory over sin. We have a Savior who sent his Spirit to enable us to resist all the temptations of the flesh, says R.C. Sproul. So look at 1 John chapter 5 and verse, uh, verses 4 through 8. And the writer almost said Paul. John says here, for, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Now look, only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. In verse 4 then, John is saying, everyone born of God does what? He overcomes the world. Clearly, then overcoming the world must also involve the ability to overcome life-dominating sin. How? Well, first it's by being born of God. It is not the man but his birth from God which conquers, not the man himself. We cannot gain either forgiveness or victory over sin based upon our own ability or our own strength. It takes a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. All who have their birth in God have overcome the world and therefore can claim victory already. They know that Jesus said, take heart, I have overcome the world. Because Jesus has been victorious, we too are victorious with him. Jesus has overcome the evil, evil one in this world and has set his people free from the power of Satan. Now, is that what you're hearing routinely today from pulpits? You've been set free from the power of Satan. You can overcome that life-dominating sin. Far too many professed Christians live as if Christ was not victorious over Satan. You just think about that yourself. You just, maybe you say this yourself. Maybe you say, well, this is how God, maybe I just can't help it. I just can't help it. I've tried, but I, I can't help it. You might, you might want to think that through you're, because you're going to have a counselee say that to you. And then you're going to have a counselee suggest to you that's kind of unloving for you to suggest that I should change. It's not very nice. You've got to be ready to deal with these things. If we are Christians because we are born of God, our sins were crucified with Christ, we are thus given Christ's victory. Therefore, the apostle, 1 John 5, 4, tells us that in order to have real and true victory over a life-dominating sin, first of all, we have to be sure that we are born of God. 
This is the new spiritual birth through God's Son, Christ Jesus, John 3, 3, of which Christ himself speaks. So what about consistent failure then in the counseling setting? How do we tie that together with what we're talking about? If your counselee continues to say, I just can't get victory over this sin. I've prayed, I've cried, I've asked God to help me, but I cannot win. I'm going to suggest to you that one of two things is true. First of all, he may not be a Christian. And you cannot be afraid to go there with the counselee. He may not be a Christian. Um, And that's something we want to take up. And secondly, he may be a Christian, but here he is not thinking biblically about sin. So much of your counseling at the beginning needs to be geared to help them determine which one is true for them. Why so? Well, you either be doing pre-evangelism to a non-believer, or you'll be doing the counseling of a believer. And you've got to do your best to know which one is true. You 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 can't counsel a dead person. Can you? You can counsel a dead person. So you can give them all the biblical truth in the world, but 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says they're not going to grasp it unless they've been given life through the Spirit. You know, in that testimony that Lynn gave today, I wasn't sure what Lynn was going to say. I told her she did a great job, but I noticed that she came up with no notes, all extemporaneous. I said, wow, you are brave to come up and do that. But I wish you could see, I wish you could have the privilege of seeing her sons. I wish you could see what Christ has done. And I don't, man, I don't mind one bet standing back and saying to you something like this. When you see those boys, that's the God I serve. That's the God I serve. Takes the dead and gives them life. And gives them ability to comprehend and to understand. Her one son, she talked, I would normally not talk as freely about this, but since she mentioned her one, her second son, his cognitive abilities and so forth, I, you know, to me, here's the deal. Matthew 15, 19, Jesus said, all behavior flows from where? All behavior flows from the heart. So I'm going to do my best to counsel this young guy. By the grace of God, he came to, to profess Christ as his Lord and Savior. I wish you could hear him get, talk about grace and Christ and theology. I'm talking theology. I wish you could hear him talk about forgiveness. It's amazing. Who, cognitively, cognitively in school, not doing well. In school, cognitively, but I've often said to him at the end of sessions, I'm going to tell you something, the smartest man in the world couldn't say, who doesn't know Christ, couldn't say what you've just said today. And couldn't understand it. Couldn't even grasp it. So we've got to know what we're doing. We're, we're either doing pre-evangelism or we're, doing, we're, we're counseling a believer. So remember being born of God is God's act on our behalf. We can't do it ourselves. It is the supernatural act of God through which human beings are taken out of the kingdom of death and darkness and brought into the kingdom of life and light. All this is accomplished through faith in the Son of God. That's the switching of the soils right there. And this is why John identifies the victory that overcomes the world as being what? Our faith. Our faith in whom or what? In Jesus Christ and his power to redeem. Listen to me. True faith has to have an object. True faith has to have an object. And the object of true faith is going to be always Jesus Christ. So without such saving faith in Christ, we are doomed to continue our failure and our efforts of victory over a life-dominating sin. This is why the Spirit, with the Spirit's help, you must help the counselee biblically determine if they are indeed a Christian. Why? 
Apart from Christ, you cannot change. However, being in Christ, change can and does come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man is in Christ Jesus, he's a what? New creation. The old is and the new has come. He's a new creation. But it will likely be a difficult cycle at the start. When I was first in my ministry, if somebody came up to me and said, you know, I really doubt if I'm a Christian. I'm not sure I'm a Christian. I don't know why. But I always felt compelled to fly them to Romans chapter 8. What shall separate you from the love of Christ? And I always took people right away there first. Now if somebody comes and tells me they're, yeah, I'm not sure I'm a Christian, I'll say, why? Why? What's making you think that? Let's, let's, let's explore that a little bit. Let's see if we can biblically help you to determine that the answer to that uh, important question. So, as you counsel, we, we first of all see uh, counseling against the life dominating sin, the cycle of failure in a life dominating sin. All right? So, we have the temptation of the sin or sins, whatever it is. And then that temptation is followed through. By the way, is it a, is it a sin to be tempted? How do you know? Jesus was tempted. Exactly. Do you know how many people fail just because they said, well, I've already been tempted, I've already sinned? So I might as well. You know? Mm-mm. Being tempted isn't a sin. But we're tempted, the enjoyment of the sin, we, we, uh, we sin, we break the commands. What happens? We feel guilty and we say, I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to do that again. That's it. That's the last time. That's the last time. And then we take pride in our short burst of self-control. You know, Mark uh, Twain said that, um, he told a group of reporters, he could quit smoking like that at any time. He could quit. And one reporter said to him, how do you know? And he said, because I've quit a thousand times before. That's what we do in our Christian life. So we, take a, we, we, we stop and we say, see, I'm not as bad as, I'm not as bad as, as, uh, Done says I am. Look at this. I, I, I can stop. And we take a pride. And then what happens is the temptation of that life-dominating sin comes along again. And we fail again. We say it's no use. I can't stop. And this, downward, this cycle just turns into a downward spiral. And we go further and further and further down until we are defined by the sin. And it has become life-dominating to us. Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 22. The cords of a man's sin do what? They bind him tighter and tighter. So through Christ, this cycle of failure can be broken. We see in 1 John uh, verse 5 where we see progression of thought and how John says victory over life-dominating sin is gained. Again, it begins with the new birth, which is the spiritual begetting act of God. It moves on to the believer's experience and act of faith, and it culminates in the personal confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Therefore, John points out that true conversion will have these three elements. So don't be afraid to say, you're not sure you're a Christian? Let's look for these things, okay? So true conversion has these three elements. First of all, it's a belief in God and his word, including all about Jesus Christ and redemption. Secondly, it's a love for God and others especially those who belong to God through Christ. And, thir- and that, by the way, just I'm kind of flying here. We don't have a lot of time. I've tried to condense all this material. I preached this through for a long time in our church. So this is condensed material. But that, listen, I'm going to tell you something. If you have to be dragged to church every Sunday, if you find no or little enjoyment to being with the people of God, if you, if you don't get what it is. I once counseled a missionary. A guy came in to see me, president of a missionary organization called, would I counsel one of the missionaries? And the man came in. 
And he said to me, first thing, almost first thing, he said to me, it was after, even after the worship service on Sunday, he said, you know, I have, a, I, I have no idea when people talk about having a sweet communion with God, I have no idea what they're talking about. I don't know about you, but every red flag that I own, pum, 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 pum. Right? I mean, wouldn't you, couldn't you at least say, wouldn't a person at least say the day that I was saved, the day that I was released from my sin, I had a sweet communion with God? I mean, Mike, maybe, it'll be, maybe it's been a fight every, every day since then, but you could at least point back to that day and say, I remember, like, like Christian in, in Pilgrim's Progress, I remember when I left my burden. You know, we used to sing that, so leave your heavy burden at the cross and go free, oh sinner, go free. I mean, at least, at least I remember that day. If, if this is a huge thing. This is an important thing. Um, I don't care if you're young or old. This is an important thing. If you take more enjoyment hanging out with people who do not know Christ, who do not profess Christ, Psalm chapter 1 and verse 1, who, who, do, who have no interest in Christ, and it's a labor and it's a hardship for, for, for you or for your counselee to be found with the people of God, that's a serious issue. Because there is a truth to this. Like attracts like. And you've maybe seen that, as have I, in, in youth group settings. Where all of a sudden, you know the kids that are sort of struggling. You know the kids aren't really quite with it. You know the kids are really kind of dealing with issues. And it's amazing. Just new kids who come. They sort of get with each other. It's pretty amazing to see. Like attracts like. So that, that those who belong to God through Christ, you have a love for them. You don't mind hanging out. That's an issue. I'll stop there, but I could go on and say, isn't it a shame when we have the caliber of guys here like Phil Johnson who's preaching here today? Shouldn't We should have 300 people here. Shouldn't we? We should have 400 people. We should have 500 people here. Hmm. It's, it's, it's something for you to look for. So belief, love, and then, of course, obedience. And I was waiting for him to say in the last session, you know, which law? You're not under the law, you're under grace, right? Which law? Well, of course. There's obedience to the moral commands of God. These are, those are three very strong indicators. So, for victory, consider also Romans chapter 8 and verse 37. Paul says in Romans 8, 37, that we are more than... Conquerors. So Paul's cry that in all these things we are more than conquerors was first thought to be only in terms of powers on the outside. <laughs> Christian consciousness soon perceived that victory included the internal enemies that confront the conscience, assail Christian beliefs and standards, corrupt the soul, and negate the life of the love and obedience to God. Thus, 1 John 5, 5 ends with where our salvation and victory begins. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So once again, as we consider this subject matter, we're driven back to Jesus Christ. How can we have a victory apart from him? How can we continue to be dominated by sin if we truly belong to him? We cannot have God's forgiveness of our sins apart from Christ, and we cannot have victory over life-dominating sin apart from Christ. The two are intimately connected. True victory over sin can only come because Christ won the victory over all sin at Calvary. Look, this is why biblical counseling is so wonderful and to me should be preeminent. Because when a person walks out in the counseling setting, I have no interest for the person to turn around and say, boy, he's a great counselor. No. I want them to walk out and say, what a wonderful Savior we have. And I challenge you to think this through. I challenge you to think this through. You tell me what other counseling paradigm points people to Jesus Christ apart from biblical counseling. 
Jesus Christ is the sole focus of the biblical counseling setting. And there's no shame in that. We're, in fact, we're thankful for it. So when we become Christians, the Bible says that we're made new in Christ. The old way of living is gone and the new way of living has come. doesn't mean that we'll never sin again. doesn't mean that we'll never be tempted. It means that now because of Christ, we can begin to have victory over the sin. Colossians 1.13, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So you have to help your counselee begin to see their life-dominating sin in light of this truth. Their allegiance is now not toward their sin, but to Jesus Christ. So here's the importance then of the word of God in gaining victory. As Christians, we're then given an overarching remedy for all sin and every temptation. Every Christian should put to memory 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. You know what it is? Any takers? Therefore, there is now no temptation which has... We just went into tongues. I don't know what happened. (laughs) But God has provided a way of escape. A way of escape. No temptation has seized you. It's common. But God has provided a way of escape. So here are five fundamental truths from 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Wow, that is so small. You have it in a book, but I didn't bring my book up here with me. Your life-dominating sin is common to man. Boy, that's a great truth. You know how Satan wants to tempt you to think that you're the only one that's ever dealt with this? Or you're the only one that's ever done this? But, but 1 Corinthians 10.13 says it's common to man. Your sin is not deeper, darker, longer, harder, stronger. It's common. It's common to man. Secondly, look at God is faithful. What a wonderful truth to remember. We're being tempted. God is faithful. Look, he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. A bruised reed he will not break, says Isaiah. He'll not let you tempted beyond, beyond what you can bear. It's a promise. And so when you, when you say, I can't help it. I got to do it. It's just so much of me. You say, no, you're believing a lie. You're believing a lie because God won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. When you're tempted, notice the certainty of the statement. Not if, you'll, if you're going to be tempted, but when you're going to be tempted. By the way, you may be tempted severely tonight because Satan, just like he did with Christ, as we'll see in Luke 4 if we get there, just as he did with Christ, at the pinnacle point of a spiritual, let's call it a spiritual high, That's when Satan usually comes in to do his best work of tempting. And then lastly, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. So, according to this verse, from where does the possibility of our victory come from? Well, along with our victory in Christ, the passage tells us that God also grants us the provision of the power of his mighty word for victory. How? Through the Holy Spirit, who brings the word of God to bear when we are tempted. So you have to see this. Victory comes through the word of God. Whatever the life-dominating sin that your counselee may struggle with, they can fight it by following the example of Christ in Luke 4. Here we see that Christ in the word memor- had the word memorized, and he used it to combat the temptation of Satan. Since Christ is our perfect model in all things, he shows us how we too can have victory. If a Christian truly desires victory over life-dominating sin, they will follow the example of the master and begin to memorize God's word. 
Isn't that what we see when Satan tempts Jesus? And Jesus defeats the temptation by saying, it is written, it is written, it says. And notice the craftiness of Satan, because at the end of it, Satan says in his third temptation, it is written. And then Satan quotes to Jesus. Imagine, as we would say in the Irish, imagine the cheek. Satan quotes to Jesus. Psalm 91 and verse 11, and he does it verbatim. Oh boy, if the, de- if the devil knows the word of God, how much more important is it for us to know the word of God as Christians? Hmm. So here's seven important steps then towards victory. These are just highlights, but you can think them through. Reading the scripture. Have them spend regular time reading God's word, studying the Bible, especially regarding the particular sin. Secondly, memorize. Have your counselee commit to memory verses with either direct or general application to their specific life-dominating sin. The dangers of the culture that we face today, liberalism, paganism, humanism, and our own sinful temptations, make it imperative that we memorize the word of God. Only in doing so will his word be instantly accessible to us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in every temptation and in every need. Teach them. Teach them about the gifts and the weapons given in their fight against life-dominating sin and temptation. Teach them about the victory of Jesus Christ, the promised Holy Spirit, the power of the Word of God. Teach them about conviction, confession, repentance, and prayer. Necessary conviction. It's an aspect of Christianity that we rarely hear about today. Why? Well, one reason is that we've become too oriented towards our feelings. We have to feel good all the time. This is also true in the church and it's true in the counseling office. The underlying theme is that we're not to be made to feel bad when we come to church. When we come to church, we want to feel good, uplifted, encouraged, but we don't want to be convicted. However, in order to have victory over sin, the counseling must see the importance of being convicted about their sin and how to handle it. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul tells us that conviction is necessary in the life of every Christian and comes to us as a benefit. If they belong to God through Christ, there's no use in trying to hide from or ignore sin that God is convicting them of. Numbers 23, 32, 23, and you may be sure that sin will find you out. If, God is, if you belong to God and he's convicting you, he's, you might as well just fall to your knee. Because he's going to get it. So conviction is, contrary to what we think, conviction isn't a bad thing. In convicting us of sin, God is calling on us to recognize that the change we must make is not simply good advice, it's an imperative. God has chosen to use conviction, often through his means of grace to us, in order to better mold us into the image of his son. We cannot ignore it. By requiring conviction, God is saying that he cares about us. Unlike the father who lets his child's disobedience slip by unmentioned, God shows concern enough to convict, to go to the trouble of arguing the case and convicting us of our wrong. Why? Because he knows that sin breaks fellowship. So there's three necessary reasons why conviction is necessary in order for victory. One, God loves us. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Two, we still have remaining sin. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Third, God promises to change us. This is three reasons why we need conviction. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. The fifth thing to teach them about, then, is confession. We're flying here. See if we can do it. A Genesis 3 type of person tries to cover his tracks. He runs and hides and blame shifts and admits only by degrees. 
A good sign that one is truly repentant over their sin is if they don't confess by degrees before God. True confession simply agrees with what God says about your sin. True biblical confession is a willingness then to acknowledge one's guilt and agree with the Bible's assessment of his condition. We see a great model of that kind of confession in Psalm 51. It must be personal and specific. I'm going to pass over these. No one else is responsible for your sin except you. No one else can confess of your sin except you. No one else can be forgiven of your sin except you. Confession is the expression of godly sorrow and remorse for our sin. Sixthly, we see repentance. The result of true conviction is the renouncing of the sin confessed. Yet I'm convinced that many professed Christians language in their life dominating sin not due to a lack of confession, so much as due to a lack of biblical repentance. For the Christian, repentance isn't an option, it is a command. So what is it? True repentance is to abhor sin as committed against God, to abhor ourselves for sin and to reform Repentance, like every other grace, is the gift of God and the reasonable and indispensable duty of men. It's not enough to feel and acknowledge that we're sinners. The mind must be imbued with a deep and settled conviction of the great sin committed against God. In the, in the Greek, the word is metanoia, and it means a change of thinking. A change of thinking. Repentance is a rethinking of one's behavior, attitudes, and belief. It's coming to a different opinion or viewpoint, one so different that it calls for different thought patterns and consequently a completely different lifestyle. Remember, this is what we said at the very beginning. You're going to have to help them to learn to think biblically. This process of conviction and repentance continues on as we grow as Christians, and we shouldn't be discouraged by it. So that takes us to this cycle of victory. There's two cycles. This first cycle is this temptation, there's sin, there's consequence. That looks familiar, doesn't it? doesn't look like victory. But the victory comes with conviction, confession, and repentance. Conviction, confession, and repentance. And this breaks the cycle of sin in the life of the believer. This cycle should and will be used often in the life of the Christian. Conviction, confession, and repentance cannot be foreign concepts with one whose walk is close with Christ. If, it, if you come into the Lord's house routinely, if you, if you hear the preaching of the word of God routinely, and you don't walk out having a sense of being convicted, may I suggest something is wrong. Something is wrong. Conviction isn't a bad thing. Conviction comes because God loves us. You know, my dad used to say when he would spank me, and he did spank me. He wasn't concerned about my self-esteem, and he did spank me. And he used to say when he spanked me, listen, if you were so-and-so's kid, I wouldn't care what you did, but because you're mine, because I love you, I'm going to do this. That's conviction. We belong to God. He's going to convict us. He's not going to let us walk on in a life-dominating sin. So the cycle shows us what to do when we've given into the temptation. The next cycle will show us how to avoid the temptation. This biblical paradigm, when followed, will put us back on the road to victory and help to keep us on the road to victory. Lastly, I feel like an auctioneer right now, but let's see if we can get it done. Lastly, teach them about the power of prayer. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. All of the weapons which we've been given are are wrapped up, as it were, in prayer and better suited to us through the humility of prayer. Prayer is no weak thing. It's the most important thing that Christians fight against life-dominating sin. Sometimes we think this as Christians. You come up and say, oh, we've had such a terrible week. And the person says, well, I'm going to pray for you. And, And we feel like that's weak. Is there a greater thing that we can do than pray for somebody? It's powerful. 
Jesus says here that his disciples are to watch and see temptations coming and then pray for strength to withstand it when it does come. Prayer is the indispensable gift in gaining victory over life-dominating sin. So this then, second cycle of victory, we have temptation, but look how we answer it. With scripture memorized, with prayer leading to victory. Okay? Scripture and prayer can stop the cycle of life-dominating sin. So these seven weapons can also set the Christian back on the right track when they fail. And they will fail. Prepare them for that truth. But as Adam says, the Bible is concerned not only with exposing wrongs, but also giving answers to writing them. The Bible boldly claims to supply what is necessary to help one change any attitudes or behaviors which are out of accord with God's will. The Bible not only shows us God's will and convicts us of our failure to follow it, it also helps us to get out of the messes into which we fall when we don't obey. As with the first cycle... This will not be an unfamiliar cycle in the life of the Christian. So encourage your counselee with the truth that they may find both cycles in operation throughout the course of the same day or even in the same hour. And isn't that the truth? However, the more they put into practice these elements involved in these cycles, the more they will begin to see victory in their Christian walk. This will be the case until the new pattern becomes their new habit. So help them to learn that Christians do not break habits, they replace habits. Aha, there's the word we've been looking for. Give hope to your counselee that they need not despair for victory over life-dominating sin. If they're in Christ Jesus, they've already been freed from sin's power and from its punishment. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. They need to learn to think biblically in order to begin to see scriptural progress. Sorry, spiritual progress. As biblical counselors, what a blessing is ours to be able to give these most desperately needed truths to a church culture that needs to hear them. May God bless each of you as you counsel from the word of God to help counselees gain victory over life-dominating sin. Why? Because in Christ they can.